0: This is the word of the Lord. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its hordes and bla- horns and blasphemous. Blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, his dwelling. Uh, That is, uh, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also, and it was allowed to, Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword... With the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray together. Oh, sorry. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word that uh, speaks of the true story of history that we are part of. We are characters and the great story that is led by your sovereign providence. And Lord, uh, we pray that these uh, words would work in us, that we would become people of endurance and faith, and ultimately that our trust and our loyalty would be in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one to whom every knee will will bow and every tongue confess that he is supreme over all. And so, Lord, be our teacher now as we look at a, a, a complex passage and uh, lead us into your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've mentioned throughout this series on Revelation that one of the main ways that we are interpreting the book of Revelation as a community is that Revelation is about the same topics as the rest of the New Testament. Revelation is about the same things that were happening as the rest of the New Testament. It's not a new topic, not a new story that we're moving on from. And one of the most important topics in the New Testament is that there are, were two great adversaries of the kingdom of God in the time of Jesus and his disciples. And the two great adversaries were the Roman Empire and unbelieving Jews. You know, not all Jews, but the early Christians were Jews. But there were uh, unbelieving Jews, specifically some Jews that were in power. So you had basically Rome and Jerusalem. Are these two adversaries of the early church? And so when Jesus was crucified, for example, if you read in the Gospels, you find out who wanted Jesus crucified. It was the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So those are the unbelieving Jews. And who had him crucified was Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor. So it was Jerusalem and Rome that had Jesus crucified. Same thing if you read the book of Acts about Jesus' disciples. They go and start all these churches in the Mediterranean world. And who are their adversaries? It's the Jewish leaders who are imprisoning them. Romans who are imprisoning them. They're getting stoned and some are put to death. And so these two adversaries are both the adversaries of Jesus and his church in the first century. And so as we come to Revelation chapter 13, we will now see those two powers emerge and they're described as two beasts. Okay, So you see there in verse 1 of the passage we just read, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So there's a sea beast. And then the passage uh, Matt's going to preach on next week is in verse 11. That uh, is in the passage next week. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So you have one beast that comes out of the sea, one beast that comes out of the earth. And you know throughout the Bible, the sea is used as a represent, to represent the Gentile nations of the world, the non-Jewish, non-Israelite peoples. So the, the, the sea beast is the Roman Empire. It's the pagan imperial power. And then the land is always used to describe the Israelites because they are the people of the land. And so the, the land beast is the, represents the Jewish powers that are oppressing God's people. And so in the first century, the twin persecutors of Jesus' disciples are both agents of the same dragon. But today, we're just going to be talking about the sea beast, the Roman Empire. And there are many reasons to identify the sea beast with Rome, and we're going to get into that when we get into this sermon. But the thing, uh, the first thing to say is that the Roman Empire was a is culture that was described as a beast, like a lion or a bear or a leopard. They're all violent. They're wild. They're dangerous to human beings. You know, the beasts are different from, you know, cattle and domesticated animals that help human beings and help them thrive. They're kind of friendly to human beings. These are, are uh, creatures that are not friendly to human beings. And so beasts are a threat. And uh, even though the sea beast of Revelation is referring to the Roman Empire, in this passage, there have been similar beastly powers Throughout history, and there are even beastly powers in our day. And so, this passage, though it's speaking to the first disciples of Jesus, it's relevant to us. It has application in our day as well. So, what does Revelation 13 tell us about beastly cultures? Well, I want to make four observations from this passage. This is what they are. So, first, beastly cultures come from a long line in human history, second, beastly cultures seek to destroy God's temple. Third, beastly cultures set themselves up as an alternative to the city of God. And fourth, beastly cultures are only tamed by Jesus Christ. Okay, so four truths. The beastly cultures come from a long line in human history. They seek to destroy God's temple and set themselves up as an alternative to the city of God. And so they are only tamed by Jesus Christ. And if you have a, a Bible with you, we're going to be turning over to the book of Daniel quite a bit today in this, in this passage. And there's a lot of details in here. So hopefully you can uh, follow along. I really look forward to studying this passage as a, as a church. So, so I, hope, I hope this is helpful as we go through it. Okay, so four points on beastly cultures. The first is this, that beastly cultures come from a long line in human history. Beastly cultures come from a long line in, in human history. And now you'll notice how this sea beast is described in verse 2. It says, and, I saw, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion. Like a lion's mouth. And so you might think this is some strange, you know, mashup of different creatures made into some kind of monster. And it is that. But what Revelation is doing here is giving a symbolic summary of the history of human civilization. And the only way you would know that is if you look back to Daniel chapter 7, where these kind of four beasts are the exact same four beasts are talked about in Daniel chapter 7. In, uh, in Daniel 7 verse 2, it says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Hear the sea again. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. And these four beasts are basically the, the four great imperial powers uh, that would rule over Israel for, this, for the 600-year period uh, leading up to the coming of, coming of Christ. So the first beast uh, is in the time of Daniel. Ba- the uh, Babylonians brought the Israelites into exile, and Daniel was brought into exile among the Babylonians. And so the, the Babylonian Empire is referred to as a lion, and then uh, uh, Cyrus the Great defeated the Babylonians in 539 uh, B.C. And so the Persians became the new world power. And the Israelites were under the Persians uh, for the next 200 years. And, there, and so Persia is referred to as a bear. And then, uh, and then after the Persians, Alexander the Great defeated the Persians in 331 B.C. and so the Greeks became the great power in the Roman Empire, and the Greeks are referred to as uh, a leopard. And then the Greeks would rule the Mediterranean world until they were defeated by the Romans at Corinth in 146 B.C. And so the fourth beast that Daniel mentions is Rome. And actually, if you go to Daniel seven verse twenty, it says that the fourth beast has ten horns, and the uh, the beast in Revelation thirteen has ten horns. And so, um, and so clearly the sea beast of Revelation 13 is Daniel's fourth beast. It's an imperial power that came after the Greek empire, and that is clearly Rome. But an interesting difference between Revelation and Daniel is that in Daniel, these animals are four different animals, but in Revelation, they're all kind of made into one animal. And basically what it's saying is that Rome has the same qualities of Babylon and Persia and Greece kind of all wrapped up into one monster beast. And, uh, and so when Rome came into power, it was another in a long line of beastly empires— and actually, this long line goes back even before Babylon. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, there's like, you know, the Babel. They built the Tower of Babel. It's kind of this, this uh, oppressive uh, uh, culture. And then there's Sodom and Gomorrah that's destroyed uh, by the Lord. And Egypt, who enslaved the Israelites uh, in the time of Moses. And then the Assyrians are the great power that you read about in the book of, of, uh, of uh, First and Second Kings. And the Assyrians eventually were defeated by the Babylonians. And so um, there is this long line, and you might say, well, are there beastly cultures today, after Rome? Was Rome the last of the beastly cultures? I mean, there's been a whole history of them. And of course, there are beastly cultures to our day that oppress God's people. You might say, well, is China, you know, is very hostile to Christians in, in that culture? Is China a beast? Absolutely, it's a beastly culture. Can the United States be a beastly culture Absolutely. It's exactly that kind of world power. When it becomes arrogant and rejects the true God, it turns into a wild and violent beast. And one of the notable qualities of these beasts is this thought. Could anyone ever defeat them? You, know, you see that there in verse 4, how it says, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? That's how the early Christians felt about the Roman Empire. I mean, who could ever defeat the Roman Empire? It's like unstoppable. And that's exactly how we feel about like the United States or China. Is we just think, how could these civilizations ever not be here? I mean, they're so powerful. They're so ingrained. There's so many people that they have authority and power over. And that's the temptation for Christians as we look at the power of the culture around us. And you look at other things like, you know, global media and global uh, corporations and, you know, the vast academia and university system or huge political structures. And you say, what is the church in the face of such awe-inspiring strength and influence and authority? You know, look at us. We're just this little church that no one knows about in Bellingham, Washington, and no one cares what we're doing. And uh, Jesus says, we're the light of the world, but we feel so small. But this is one of the amazing things. Where is the Roman Empire now? Gone. Vapor. I mean, long gone. Where is Assyria or Babylon or Persia or the Greeks? Where is the ancient Egyptian Empire? They're all gone and disappeared. All those empires have been broken. Where is the kingdom of Jesus? Two billion strong in every nation today. I mean, billions of people are worshiping like we are right now in every tongue and language. That people give their loyalty to Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and it's growing like crazy. It might not be growing a lot in the United States, but in the majority world in South Africa uh, uh, in Africa, in South America, in China, you know, in, in Asia. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is growing stronger and stronger. It's grown more in this last century than by all the previous centuries combined. That's how much it's growing. And that's why Revelation was given to the first Christians because just because you feel so small compared to the Romans, the kingdom that you are a part of will far outlast theirs. And so you look at the closing verse of this passage we just read. What does it say? Second part of verse 10. Here is a call For the endurance and faith of the saints. Revelation will say, in the end, the great beasts and the great dragon behind them will all fall. And in the meantime, it will look like you and I are being defeated, just as it looked like Jesus was defeated. But in the end, the kingdom of God will triumph. So first, beastly cultures come from a long line in human history. Now, you might hear that and think, well, uh, that empires in the Bible are always a bad thing. You know, they're always wild and violent beasts. But actually, the Bible's view of empires is very complicated because empires can be, in the Bible, God's servants. They're called God's servants in the Old Testament in a number of places. Or these empires can seek to devour God's people and become God's enemies. And so that leads... To our second point, so beastly cultures come from a long line in human history. Second, beastly cultures seek to destroy God's temple. Beastly cultures seek to destroy God's temple. Now, all these cultures that we're talking about—the Babylonians, you know, the um, Persians—were all violent, powerful, aggressive. But the main question about God's treatment of even pagan empires was: How does the empire treat God's temple? If you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. If you protect God's temple, God will protect you. That's kind of how God deals with empires. And some of the empires, if you read through the Old Testament, actually did protect God's people. If you go back to Genesis, uh, you know Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And he makes this whole plan to rescue Egypt and the surrounding nations from a famine. And he, you know, he makes these storehouses. And so Pharaoh... Tells Joseph, your family, the, Is- the Israelites, Jacob's, you know, twelve sons, can come and live in this beautiful land in in Egypt, and he's going to take care of them, and they're going to prosper there. So here's an empire that's actually taking care of God's people, or even Daniel. You know, Daniel went into exile among the Babylonians in the six uh, in the uh, sixth century BC, and uh, you know, the Babylonians had destroyed the temple and Jerusalem and. But eventually Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, converts and he becomes a believer and he comes to worship and he becomes much more friendly to to, uh, Daniel. And then Cyrus the Persian, who defeats the Babylonians, sent uh, the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He's friendly to the Israelites. And another Persian emperor, Artaxerxes, helped Nehemiah, sent him back to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in the 5th century BC. And actually, there's some record outside of the Bible that, uh, that Alexander the Great had a kind of a positive, impressed view of the Jews. And he was, you know, he was kind of warm towards them. And so beastly cultures can serve to protect God's people and God's temple. But what was the case with Rome in the time of Revelation? Well, the sea beast in Revelation was called up by the dragon. It's becoming an agent of the dragon. And you see there in the second part of verse 2, and to the beast the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And so this beast is a servant of the devil. And you see the effect of that there in verse 5 where it says, and the beast was given a mouth Uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So the beastly culture of Rome has become hostile to the Lord and to his people. Now, the mention of 42 months is a theme that runs through the book of Revelation. Maybe you've picked that up a few times as we've been going through it. You know, last week it's mentioned twice, but it's called 1260 days. And then it's called a time, a times, and half a time, which is three and a half years. And then now it's called 42 months. Those are all three ways of talking about three and a half years. And you might say, what's the three and a half years? What's that talking about? Well, three and a half years is half of seven years, a week of years. It's half a week of years. And um, the New Testament is largely talking about the 40-year period from 30 AD to 70 AD, that's largely what the history of the New Testament is about. And 30 AD was the final year of Jesus' ministry. it's the most intense year of his ministry, which culminated in his uh, 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 death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. So that's 30 AD. And then 70 AD is when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans, and the temple is, is basically forever destroyed, and the temple system is ended permanently. And so, um, you know, in the Bible, important things happen in 40-year periods. Like, you know, the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And now there's a 40-year period between Jesus, uh, you know, the time of the early disciples. And the book of Acts tells the story of the early church from Jesus' ascension in 30 AD to the Apostle Paul being under house arrest in Rome in 63 AD. So Acts tells you about 33 of those 40 years. And now Revelation is talking about the last seven of those years, of the 40 years. That's what Revelation—so Acts gives us the first 33 years. Revelation gives us the last seven. Now again, this seven-year period is talked about in Daniel. It's not Daniel 7 this time, but Daniel 9 this time. And uh, it says that during the roughly 500 years from Babylon to Rome, Jerusalem is rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt. And this is basically exactly the time period predicted in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9.25 says this. Then for 62 weeks. It's a little complicated. When it says 62 weeks, it's actually 62 weeks of years, which is 434 years. This is what uh, Daniel says. For 434 years, Jerusalem shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. The troubled time is that they're living under the, uh, you know, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans during that whole time period. But Jerusalem's being. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And so there's a debate about when is this 62 uh, weeks. Um, Well, I'm not sure exactly. This This is what I think is most compelling. You know, 434 years is exactly the time. From the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time, four forty four BC, to the completion of the temple by Herod in ten BC. And that's, and the temple is completed just seven years before Jesus was born. And that's what that's what Daniel says is that after the 62 weeks, then the anointed one is going to come, and Jesus comes. But then Daniel says that after the Messiah comes, there will be a seven year period leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. And this is, this is what it says. Daniel nine twenty seven says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. It's a week of years, seven years. And for half of the week, so there he mentions the half of the week. That's the three and a half years that Revelation keeps talking about. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And so these seven years are 64 A.D., To 70 AD, a week of years, and at the end of that time period, that's exactly what happened, was the ending of sacrifices and offerings when the temple was destroyed. It was destroyed. I mean, the Jews have not done sacrifices and offerings since then. I mean, that's just a historical fact to this day. And you can see that uh, the issue here is what is happening to God's temple and so in the beginning of those seven years, in 64 AD, it began the first systematic persecution of Christians by the Romans under the emperor Nero. Nero uh, set Rome on fire and then uh, blamed the Christians for it. And, so, and then Nero died in 68 uh, AD. So it's basically exactly three and a half years, 42 months, is how long that persecution from uh, Nero was happening. And then the second half of the week is the Jewish wars where the Jews were fighting against the Romans and the Romans eventually came to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And so the stirring up of the sea beast was the Roman Empire. In this prophesied seven-year period, Rome has become a beastly culture that's seeking to destroy God's temple. And Revelation is basically written... Right at the beginning of those seven years. This is about to happen to God's people, this seven year period. It's right at the end there of the book of Acts. As Peter Lighthart puts it, Rome is predator, not protector. So the empire is not protecting God's temple. It's hunting God's temple. And so what we've seen so far is that human history has had a long line of beastly cultures. And the main question about beastly cultures is how do they treat God's temple? If you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. And that is true to this day. The big question for nations like China or the United States is how are you treating God's temple? How are you treating God's people where God dwells? And uh, Christians have to know that even if those beasts turn violently against them, even though they seem so massively powerful, in the end they will come to nothing and God's kingdom will endure forever. Okay, so beastly cultures have a long line in human history. And when they go wrong, they seek to destroy God's temple. But this leads to a third, third observation about beastly cultures from this passage. And it's that beastly cultures set themselves up as an alternative to the city of God. Beastly cultures set themselves up as an alternative to the city of God. They try to be like the city of God. And one of the things that makes the beast particularly powerful in this passage is the mixture of worship and political power. You notice how the beast has ten horns? You know, uh, the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the place of worship, had ten horns in it on the, on the, uh, the two altars and on, in the, uh, uh, by the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. And so horns are symbols of power and worship. And it says in verse 4 of this passage, And they worshipped the dragon. And in the Roman imperial cult, there was a strong mixture of religion and politics. You know, Caesar Augustus had claimed that he was the son of God, that he was divine. And the Roman Empire, they said, you know what, everyone, you can worship whatever God you want. We we are totally tolerant of all kinds of worship, as long as you include in your worship worshiping the emperor. That is your duty and loyalty to the Roman Empire. So there's this mixture of politics and worship. And in fact, there's a strong sense of how the dragon tries to mimic God. It's not only that the dragon wants to be worshiped like God, but look at what it says in verse 3 there. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so the beast has this kind of like death and resurrection. You know, Jesus dies and rises again, and the whole world follows after him. Well, the beast does the same thing. He has this mortal wound, and then he's healed, and the whole world comes and follows him. He's trying to be like the city of God. And some of you might be wondering, what's this talking about? That There's a mortal wound, and then he was healed. And there's, you know, different ideas of what this might mean. Uh, You know, this beast has seven heads. Some people think these seven heads are those empires from Babylon all the way to Rome. And if that's the case, then the mortal wound to Rome would have been when Julius Caesar is assassinated. And it seems like the empire is going to uh, no longer be an empire anymore. But then Caesar Augustus, you know, revives the empire. And so that's kind of like the resurrection of the empire. It could be that. Um, others have thought that the seven heads of the beast refer to the Roman emperors from Caesar to the fall of, of Jerusalem. And uh, the one head that was wounded would be Nero, the fifth of those emperors, uh, who was the great persecutor of the church. He, he uh, committed suicide in 68 AD and was reported to have come back to life. And so whatever the answer is, the point is this, that beasts set themselves up as the saviors and God of the world. That's what beastly cultures do. And this passage is a warning for a state or for a government or for a ruler to want to become like a god to its people. And this is some of the political theology of Revelation. The state has a potential to become a beast. And if there's something that makes the Bible you know, lean more conservatively, Politically, and I don't mean the Bible aligning with the Republican Party. I'm just saying be more conservative. This is why is because when a people has a vision that the state, if it has all the allegiance of the people, will then heal the people, that dream is the beast setting setting itself up as an alternative kingdom of God. And Christians have good reason to be suspicious of such claims by the state. And you, you can see that that's what's happening. Look at verse 7. Also, it was, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. If you've read the book of Revelation, does that sound familiar at all? Tribe, people, language, nation? That's from Revelation 7. That's the kingdom of God that has people from every tribe. And so the beast is trying to set itself up like an alternate church an alternate city of God, and get everyone's hope and everyone's worship in it. The beast is both suppressing the church and trying to be like the church. And we see that in countless ways in the modern era, where the state believes that it can bring about the kingdom of God into the world. You know, uh, one example of this, you know, this is describing a multicultural um, society in, uh, that the beast leads, and secular Europe, for the last at least couple generations— has been trying to create a multicultural uh, civilization that's bound together with secular humanism. is a secular society. And so there's been scores of, of uh, Muslims that have immigrated into, into Western Europe, and they're not secular humanists. <laughs> they got a totally different worldview. And they thought, we can bring everyone together, and we're all going to live together, and we're going to all understand one another. And they're finding that multiculturalism is failing. Because what's going to hold diverse peoples together? The Bible tells us the only thing that can hold diverse peoples together is the worship of Jesus. And when the beast pretends that he can bring about the, you know, the kingdom of God, it will always be a failure. And I'll say that many of you would say, I really want politics to stay out of the church. I hear about it all the time on the news and in the culture, and I want to hear something different when I come to church. And I think on the one hand, that's basically exactly what Revelation is saying. You know You think about these two paths that it places before us, verse eight: "And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast." That's the main path of the world, is to worship the beast. Uh, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the lamb who was slain. So it's basically saying there's these two paths. Is you either give your worship to the beast and place your hope in this alternate kingdom of God or your name has been written by grace in the book of life and you follow the lamb and believe in his kingdom coming in the world and that is your hope. And so on the one hand you could say revelation is telling us not to think about politics and yet here we are talking about the Roman Empire. Here we are talking about beasts. Revelation is maybe the most political book in the whole Bible. And it's because the church is going to have a confrontation with the governing powers around us. That has been true throughout church history. It's true of Christians in China. It's true of of Christians uh, in, uh, in Canada. It's true of Christians in the United States. This is a reality of the Christian life. And so how do I become a person whose ultimate hopes are in Christ and not the political system of the beasts of the world? Well, you cannot do it on your own strength. It is only if God has written your name in his book as a gift of grace. That's how we become like that. And so beastly cultures come from a long line in human history and they often become violent and seek to destroy God's temple and set themselves up as an alternative an alternative to the city of God. So what is God going to do with these beastly cultures? Well, that's our final point. Is that beastly cultures are only tamed by Jesus Christ. Beastly cultures are only tamed by Jesus Christ. And you know, I mentioned that the background story for Revelation 13 is Daniel chapter 7, the vision of the four beasts, so the lion, the bear, the leopard and the fourth beast. Well, do you know, that's Daniel chapter 7. Do you know what Daniel chapter 6 is about? It's the famous story, Daniel in the lion's den. And all of a sudden you realize, and Daniel, who represents Israel, is thrown into a lion's den with these violent lions. But Daniel's not destroyed, and the lions aren't destroyed. What happens to the lions? They're tamed. And it turns out that Daniel in the lion's den, though those are true events, is also a parable, a picture of what God is doing in world history. And actually, there's a very similar, something very similar said in, in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 is one of the great promises of the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And, when, uh, when, and it promises that when the Messiah comes, what will his kingdom be like? And this is how it's described. Isaiah 11:6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze together. It's the exact same animals from Revelation 13. The lion, the bear, and the leopard, except these beasts have been tamed, and they now walk with little children and walk with the lambs, and they become friendly to humanity. And so the story of the Bible... And the story of Revelation is not simply that these wild cultures will be destroyed by God, but they, they will be tamed and brought into the kingdom of God. Actually, Revelation 11, 15 says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And when we get to the end of Revelation, it gives this amazing vision that by the light of the Lamb will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Incredible vision of the future of human history. And so, friends, this whole vision, this history is given to us for our hope and for our endurance. We might feel small. We might say, what is our little church with all these big powers everywhere in the world? Believe and trust that Jesus will tame the nations. He's been doing it for 2,000 years, and he's continuing to do it today. And one day the wild beasts will be no more. They will be at peace, and we will have eternal peace in the kingdom of our Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, how majestic are these passages just a few verses that open up to us all of world history with such uh, care and promise and vivid detail? And you tell us that these words were given to us for our endurance and for our faith, that we would believe in you, that we would continue in the work as your servants here. And uh, Lord, We believe that it is not us that will tame the nations of the world. It is you. And we want to be useful instruments for the coming of your kingdom. Um, And as Jesus, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the kings of the earth bow their knee to you and bring their glory into the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen.